We started uh, last week speaking about uh, a topic in elder law, I guess you could say, elder law from a halakhic perspective. We spoke about Bishul Akram for the frail and the elderly. So continuing in that vein, uh, this uh, week's topic also is a very relevant halakha lamaisa question in elder law. We really haven't seen it discussed uh, so much in uh, halakhic literature. And that is uh, the question of undue influence in wills and other transactions. Uh, this uh, comes up uh, quite a bit with claims uh, that somebody, uh, unfortunately, was nifter, and uh, then it's discovered that uh, at the last minute they changed uh, their will to divert uh, the assets from uh, the Yorshim, from those who would have expected to inherit, and instead the vast majority of the estate went to some caregiver or the vast majority of the estate went to, to some charity that nobody heard of, where maybe there were some people from that charity that applied pressure that was of a questionable nature uh, upon uh, the individual as uh, they were uh, heading towards their last days of uh, their life. Or there might be one of the relatives, like there might be several children, and one child has maybe greater access during a particular point in time to a dying parent, and somehow it's discovered that the bulk of the estate was given to that particular child in a last-minute change that had been made to a prior will to the exclusion of the other children. And then there's a question, was there perhaps undue influence that was placed upon this elderly, frail individual who may not necessarily have had their full cognitive function, uh, or do we say that uh, the presumption is uh, that if uh, there is uh, a, a will bequest, some other document which is uh, signed by an individual, that it's presumptively valid? This was a sort of question that was discussed by the post not only for people who are on their deathbed, the classic what we call shkib meira type of case, uh, but even people of diminished capacity when it came to other transactions, uh, that uh, there's somebody of very diminished capacity who authorizes a get to be given to his wife, and then afterwards he comes home and says, Hi, I'm home, what's for supper? Without necessarily realizing what he had done, at what point in time do we say that a person just doesn't really have the mental capacity to just follow, sort of following the instructions of what people tell them to do without, without really recognizing uh, the import or the meaning of uh, those um, uh, of their actions? Uh, that uh, they are uh, that they are performing. Uh, so uh, this is something that comes up in um, in Bate Din, and I don't know necessarily that uh, there is um, a a clear sort of instruction guide. However, we can uh, identify a couple of the issues, and the two issues I would say that uh, stand out are number one, what is the halakhic definition of a person who is a shote, a person who is considered to be, I mean, literally a shota means an imbecile or somebody who's demented or deranged, psychotic, but really shota means a person who is of sufficient diminished, sufficiently diminished mental capacity that uh, their transactions are not considered to be, uh, not considered to be valid. The second question is even if a person would have all their marbles or would be considered to be of sufficient mental capacity, at what point do we say that the force or the pressure that is exerted upon them is so great that it constitutes undue influence 
from uh, the uh, perspective of halacha, uh, that uh, the actions that were performed by this person uh, would not be considered to be halakhically uh, valid. Uh, and uh, this was a question that was actually uh, sent to a number of postkin by a journal called the Bahai Bahem Journal. Uh, this was in Tufshin Nun Dalit 30 years ago. And uh, there were various answers uh, that were given to these questions. The basic uh, Shaila was uh, specifically focused upon Shinuye Tsebos Ayade Kashishim. Changes in wills uh, that are performed by people who are very elderly, which was sort of the first case example, case study uh, that I presented uh, to you. One of uh, the uh, respondents uh, to this survey was none other than uh, Menashe Klein, um, the Zatzal, a, a figure whom we have quoted in connection with uh, various other uh, halakhic questions and controversies in uh, the past, and he had uh, something to say about uh, this subject that we will uh, look at or review in just a, in just a brief moment. Uh, but uh, one of the things uh, that is spoken about by some of the writers, is, including himself, is that uh, really, there is no special category known as undue influence upon the elderly. In halakha, you have to look at to sort of just the classic sources with respect to who's considered to be a shote, not qualified to make a bequest, and who's considered to be subject to undue influence, and what are the consequences of undue influence. So with respect to a shote, uh, the sugya that kind of gives us a little bit of a basis is the first of source, the sugya in Subhastap Memchesum and Aleph, um, that says that if somebody is nishtate, based on your din you know what you do with somebody who is not capable of making decisions regarding their assets? You appoint a guardian. You appoint a guardian to give the power of attorney to somebody. Uh, to make that determination. This can either happen through that individual as they see that uh, they're beginning to lose it, appointing somebody, or maybe before they get to the point, to the point, obviously, of losing it, they appoint somebody whom they trust to make these decisions. This is the sort of thing that happens in families all the time, that you have a, a relative who's becoming elderly and they take a trusted child or children and say, I want to give you power of attorney to make a decisions on my behalf when the time comes and that helps to effectuate a smooth transition during those periods of time. Or there is somebody who was clearly trusted by the relative, by the individual, could be a relative, it could be a friend, uh, to make those decisions on their behalf as they were getting older. And then the Besden, or it could be whoever happens to have the courts of competent jurisdiction, but the Gemara assumes you have a Besden that's watching over when it comes to these matters. The Besden says, look, this person seems to have been the trusted confidant of this individual, we're going to appoint uh, this individual to be the apotropist, so to speak, for this person. The Gemara gets in Daphne Base, talks about both of uh, these models, and the Gemara Suva simply says that oh, you obviously have to appoint somebody if they haven't already been appointed to, so to be the uh, to be the apotropist, and uh, they can make all kinds of different uh, determinations um, uh, with respect uh, to t- uh, sustaining and taking care of that person's family. If it's a younger person, they might have young charges that they need to take care of. They might have a wife uh, that needs, if it's a man, they might have a wife who needs to be supported out of the assets. And the Gemara also talks about Dover Acher, 
Tzavar Acher is a reference to, let's say, it's a wife that she's also entitled to jewelry, some extras, and even stucco. The Poskim talk about, and this is a question that we get very often, you have a caretaker who says that uh, there are assets in the estate, and uh, should I be mezakeh, the person that I'm taking care of, by giving stucco? to various organizations. Maybe it's a suchus for them. They're not authorizing the stalker because, of course, they're no longer mentally competent. So uh, the general approach, the Pisgay I gave um, long quotations. We're not going to go through every word, obviously. But um, the Sefer Pisgay in which he says that the basic litmus test or general rule is that if the individual, let's say every single year, gave um, their assets, an $18 check to this stalker, $36 check to this stalker, $100 check to that stalker, and the estate and the assets and the income continue to justify giving that same amount of money while still being able to take care of the individual's other needs, then you can continue to give that stuck up because that's just continuing the same pattern that this person established. But not if there would be a new stalker. You don't say, oh, I'm sure this person would have wanted to give to that new stalker. So that, says the Pisgah Koshen, you're not allowed to do. Somebody asked me the Shaila not so long ago, uh, regarding a clothes drive that was taking place in their neighborhood and they said they're taking care of a frail elderly mother and she has these wonderful, beautiful clothes that she's never realistically ever going to look at again or ever wear again and she's not in a state to even know that they exist anymore, uh, per se, and uh, this would be a tremendous uh, boon uh, to the community to give uh, a lot of her clothing to the people who are in need and I said you can't really do it. You can't really do it uh, at this point in time because all of the assets can only be spent according to the way that it was authorized, either explicitly or implicitly by example and uh, by prior practice or by the individual in question. So that, obviously, the Gemara is saying that a person who is a shota needs somebody to take care of their assets because they can't do it themselves. That's the next source. It's more explicit. And Subhastav Kupam and Alep talks about a fellow named Barshatya. I don't think that when he was called, he was called Bar- he was the, the parents named him Barshatya, but that was kind of his nickname. Oh, that, you know, that, that, that crazy guy, um, Dr. Hyde, whatever. Uh, so Dr. Hyde was sometimes Dr. Hyde. He was sometimes Mr. He was, he was sometimes, I'm sorry, Dr. Jekyll. He was sometimes Dr. Jekyll, but he was also sometimes Mr. Hyde. So this Dr. Jekyll, the Barashatya, sold us some Nechassim. There's a question, did he do it when he was Dr. Jekyll or did he do it when he was Mr. Hyde? Um, so two Aiden came along and they said, Kishu Shotezov. And when he was Dr. Jekyll, he did it. Um, when he was, I don't know, which one was the crazy one? Mr. Hyde was the crazy one, excuse me. Okay, did he do it when he was Mr. Dr. Jekyll? Presumably was a doctor, so he knew what he was doing. Okay, did he do it when he was Dr. Jekyll? When he was, um, when he was of sound mind? Or did he do it when he was Mr. Hyde, when he was not of sound mind? So there were two witnesses who came along and they said, no, he did it when he was Dr. Jekyll, fully cognizant of what he was, uh, what he was doing. Um, so uh, there were two, but there were two witnesses who said Kishu Shotezavin that he was Mr. Hyde when he did it. So Amr Ravashi, Ravashi said Uki Tre Lahadi Tre, since it's not clear that we know that the assets belonged in his possession beforehand, uh, but we're not sure if he was of sound mind when he transferred the assets. So we say. I have two witnesses who said he was of sound mind, two who said he wasn't of sound mind. Therefore, they cancel each other out and the assets remain where they are. This is a very important principle because what it establishes is that if I do have a suffix, let's say that a person is on their deathbed and there's a legitimate question 
as to whether they had mental capacity, they had whether they had sound mind. I have a situation equivalent to two witnesses saying one thing and two witnesses saying the opposite. Then you can make an argument based on this at Gemara that you should just leave the assets the way they are and say that we can't honor the bequest unless we can really demonstrate the person really was of sound mind, which means that in a questionable situation like that, it would be the regular Yorshim, it would be the regular heirs that, that would inherit the assets and not some sort of a questionable bequest that, that we can't prove. And the question is, when does it become a questionable uh, bequest, right? Now, this is only if the assets haven't already been transferred. Tosfos there and that dop says, if it's metaltalim, if we're talking about a movable uh, property that has already been given to somebody, a piece of jewelry, and that person's holding on to it, so then if it's a question, we say that the person who has it already uh, is the muksuk, and they would get to hold on to it in that case. It's only if it's something like real estate that can't really be transferred would we say that it remains a question. The Shulchan Arach and Simon Reish Lam and Hay and Choshim Mishpah basically codifies all of this, says Hashote. If somebody is um, of a, a diminished mental capacity, they're deranged, they're, uh, they're uh, an imbecile, they just don't have the mental capacity. None of their gifts, none of their bequests are considered to be valid. Whether it is real estate, whether it's movable personal property, and you need to appoint an apotropus, the bezin is mamidin apotropus, the shotim, kederek shimamanim, the ketanim, they have to appoint a guardian for that individual. And the next, the sif says, that if you do have somebody who is sometimes of sound mind, and sometimes not of a sound mind, um, so then you have to uh, determine when they made the bequest, was it at a time in which they were of sound mind or not? And the Ramah brings the case of Barshatya, that when I have conflicting testimony about this, that at least if it's real estate, something that wasn't actually transferred, it can't be transferred clearly, then we leave it in the same state that it was in previously. So we see from here, Shote, their Mecca is Nova. Now, how do I define a Shote? The Gemara in Chagiga, which is source 6 above on the bottom, has uh, three specific examples of Esau Shote, who's a Shote, and Rashi there says that when we're talking about who is a Shote, we're talking about who is a Shote, this is source Zion on page 2, whenever we talk about a Shote, who is exempt from mitzvahs, exempt from punishment, and more importantly for our purposes, and their transactions are not considered to be valid, whether they're selling and whether they are buying, right? So the Gemara gives three examples. Somebody who goes out in the middle of the night, it doesn't mean just to take a walk in order to clear their mind. Means they're doing it in sort of a very weird way. based like maybe like a weird wolf way. or somebody who is lying in a cemetery. They go to sleep in the cemetery, which is generally sort of a weird thing, almost objectively. somebody who just tears their clothing, and there's a maklokis there in the Gemara whether the uh, person needs to do all of them, whether they need to do all of them. That's the opinion of Rapuna. Rapuna says, the person has to do all of these nutty things to be considered a shote. Rabbi Yochanan says, even if they just do one of them, and that's how the poskim, basically paskin, that even if it is only one of it, these are three things. But, is this a list, an exclusive list? It would seem from the end of the Gemara, that's what the base Yosef says, it's not an exclusive list uh, because of the fact that, um, that there is a brisa that's brought by Rapapa 
that says that we include somebody, this isn't simply somebody who tears their clothing, but somebody who destroys whatever you give them. You give them any kind of object, a gift, or whatever it is, they destroy it immediately. Um, so he says that Rafuna that has, says Papa had Rafuna and heard that this Brisa, then he would have agreed that he, that it's a that it's not a, a cumulative list, but any one of these individual things, just like a person who destroys everything that you give him, is considered a shote. So anybody who does one of these three things, if they do it, says the Gemara Derach Shtus. They do it in a way which is a, a crazy, uh, nutty way. Um, then that would constitute the person being a shote. So that says the base Yosef, since this last case that was brought by the Brisa, is not identical to the first three cases. So what do we see? We see the list is really a non-exhaustive list. It's a non-exhaustive list. And the one who seems to codify the fact that it's a non-exhaustive list is the Ramam. The Ramam in Hukhoseidus, that's the source of Hay over here. The Ramam, when he talks about who is the Shoteh, who is Pasoleidus, he talks about this specifically in the context of a Shoteh who is not trusted, not qualified to be an aide. He's not eligible to be a witness. Um, and he gives the reason because he's not a Ben Mitzvot, which is odd. He could have just said because he's not a Ben Das. And he gives all kinds of examples that are not necessarily even found in the Gemara. Persons, he says, not only somebody's Mahalich Arum, he walks around naked. Meshavik Halim, we do find in the Gemara. He destroys utensils. Mizorik Abadim, throws rocks we didn't find. Elokol Mishinit, not only those Bobad, Elokol Mishinit, Rafa Daito, Minmitzis Daito, Mishubeshis, Tomin, Bedavar, Minadavarim. Anybody who is crazy in any, in other ways, and they demonstrate that they're always on the wacky Meshugana side of the equation. So even though even though you can have a conversation with them when it comes to other matters, we assume, no, if they are acting so crazily when it comes to some other matter that shows that they're not considered to be kosher. Such a, such a person is considered to be a shote. What is the subject of tremendous discussion is the next sip of the Rambam, where the Rambam invents, it seems, a new category, but says this new category is going to be treated like a shote as well. What's the new category? The new category is hapisayim b'yoyser. Hapisayim b'yoyser means people who are very foolish, they're very simple-minded, feeble-minded individuals. So they're not necessarily a shota. They're not tearing their clothing. They're not walking around at night and sleeping in the uh, in the cemetery. Uh, but uh, they are individuals who are just feeble-minded. So says the Rambam. They're also disqualified from testimony. Why? They won't be able to tell if they're saying something which is self-contradictory. They can look at something but not fully comprehend it to the degree that we would trust their testimony. And therefore he says, them, these people, as well as people who are uh, constantly um, flustered and, uh, and, and, and constantly uh, in a state of uh, dilapidation and a state of confusion uh, and in a state of um, trepidation, those individuals all these people are also considered to be shotim, but he says it's very difficult for me to articulate specifically the conditions and uh, the specific state of mind 
that would cause us to define an individual as falling into this category simply based on the fact that they are always very nervous and uptight. Here I need to rely upon the Bezdin of the CRC or otherwise to make that determination because even I, the Rambam, who are really good at writing things down uh, and codifying things, I'm not able to really codify exactly every single case that would fall into this category. That's what the Rambam says. Comes along the Maharit. Maharit, as we know, a very early Akron of Yosef Kolon, and Kolon, and the Maharit, not a source that I have independently, but he's quoted by a lot of the sources that I have. The Maharit says that this additional category of the Rambam, when it comes to the Pesayim B'yoyser, is the only a category that the Rambam brought in Hilchos Edus. That's why he brought it at this point in time, when he's talking about who is disqualified from being an aide, because he says this is only, uh, this is only relevant to disqualifying somebody from being a witness because such an individual is not able to really discern fully every single aspect of what they are looking at. And therefore, they're going to testify in best and they might get certain details wrong in a way that will affect the outcome of the case so we can't really trust them to be witnesses. But if they have a little uh, gadget uh, that uh, they want to sell to somebody or they want to buy from somebody or they have a woman they want to marry or want to divorce. Ah, when you're dealing with uh, these types of things of just a personal decision that's going to only affect them uh, and those close to them and not to the entire world. Um, so then we're going to allow for them to be involved in transactions provided that we examine them Ahead of time, we look at them and we see that they know what they're doing. If they seem that when it comes to a business transaction, they know what they're doing, so then their business transactions can be 100% valid and we don't have a problem. The Onig Yontif, okay, a, an authority, I think 19th century figure, the Onig Yontif famously relied upon this in the case of a man who got married in what you might call a bad shidduch. We always say we want good shidduch and for our children this was a bad shidduch. It was a shidduch in which a girl and her family got railroaded to be set up with a man who was unfortunately essentially uh, dysfunctional. That's the Oden Yantam on the bottom of page 3. You can easily miss it. Your source Yud. And then it goes over to the next page. It was a man who could barely speak, says the Oros for says the, he's an Oros for Siam, says the Oden Yantam, could barely speak. Daito Kusha Me'od, Me'at Me'od Binaso. His understanding of things was incredibly teeny tiny, and uh, the uh, and this woman got stuck with him. But finally, uh, she figured out her way out. That she figured out that if she could direct him um, uh, through through, through uh, very detailed instructions, I want you to walk into that room. You're going to see a rabbi. You're going to say to the rabbi, "I want to authorize a get." Just repeat after me a hundred times. I want to authorize again. She got him to say that and to walk in and a get was written. Now the woman has gone off and she's gotten remarried, but she hasn't lived with her husband yet because there was a whole brouhaha about whether the get was really a valid get, whether this person had the mental capacity or not. And the Oneg Yantiv was asked this question. He quoted the Ramam and he quoted the Maharit. And he said that there's a big difference between whether somebody is an objective shote. 
like in those categories that, that may be described by the Gemara, where we say the person is a shota, they act like an imbecile, they do things that are out absolutely crazy and off the wall, so then they're not really considered to be a bendas, they're not really considered to have requisite mental capacity when it comes to anything, even if it sounds like they know what they're doing. But he says the second category of the Rambam, the Pesayim, those who are feeble-minded, that's a totally different story. There they can't be a witness, but if we see that they have just sort of the basic minimum threshold <coughs> capacity to understand the nature of the transaction and the consequences of the transaction. Oh, you're going to sell this watch. That means the watch is now going to go to this other person and you're going to get some money. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you see that they sort of, that they basically get it. Um, so then even if they're not Albert Einstein, uh, nonetheless, it would still be uh, considered a valid transaction. It says the Onig Yantiv, and he spends a lot of time on this. He says that it's long as the wife had explained to him, or whomever explained to him, you're going to authorize a get, yeah, and it had been explained before, and then you know when this get happens, your wife, she won't be married to you anymore. Oh, yeah, oh, oh, oh. okay, and he says he understands um, and uh, then he authorizes the sofa to write the get, even if at the moment that he authorized the get, he's not thinking, oh, I'm authorizing a get, and as a result of the get, this woman, the, my wife's going to be divorced from me, and she won't be married to me anymore. But he knew from beforehand that if you authorize a get, then that means that your wife is not going to be with you anymore. That's good enough. He spends a lot of time on that. It's very interesting. He must spend like, because obviously that must have been an issue in this particular case. So even at the moment of authorization, he wasn't thinking of, well, it had been explained to him, but he understood when it was explained to him that this is the consequence of authorizing it. So a very, very low level that would be required under these circumstances. And he says that's good enough. And in this case, he feels that the threshold was satisfied. And there are other shuvos along these same lines. The Sam Sofer dealt with a slightly different case that source tests, source nine in the materials. But on page two, Sam Sofer dealt with a person who um, suffered from melancholy, suffered from abject depression. Now, abject depression is, according to a number of the Meforshim, that's in a totally different category. Depression doesn't necessarily mean that uh, the person does not have mental capacity, even though they seem to have checked out entirely from uh, the world. So uh, there are those um, uh, there are those commentators who say that in a case of depression, you never have to worry that the person is on the level of a shota uh, because the depression is in a totally different category. It has nothing to do with a diminished mental capacity. Ashita Rabbi Yehuda Yoshua Heschel, who held this way, the base of Ryan, however, says, as does Razam and Nehemia Goldberg, for that matter, that it doesn't really matter if the root cause is depression. If the person's depression leads them to a state where the catatonic and they don't seem to talk, interact, or have any understanding of what's going on around them, it doesn't matter if the root cause was depression, they might still be in the category of shotev. It says the Ksam Sofi, even if that would be true, it doesn't really uh, matter uh, so much, um, because he says that this is sort of not in the category of those cases that were listed in the Gemara. If it wasn't in that category, then it falls into the secondary category, namely those where the Rambam says it's like the Pesayim or those the Mevoholim, the Yoser, those individuals who are very frenetic, 
um, where you simply have to make a case-by-case evaluation. If you make in the course of the case-by-case evaluation a determination the person knew what they were doing at the time in which uh, they authorized to get this person at a higher level of uh, mental awareness and, and acuity, uh, certainly than the person in the Oni Yumtiv's uh, example, when the person would be authorizing to get this was somebody who you could talk to and to, could and did seem to have an understanding when you would engage him, when you wouldn't engage him, so then he was uh, then he was out of commission. But if you engaged him, so he understood what he was doing. So he said this individual uh, certainly would be capable of giving of giving a get. Not only that, but we had the case of Barshatya that showed that a person could go back and forth. A person could be Itzim Cholim, Itzim Shote. The Dr. Jekyll sat a sane person and the Mr. Hyde insane person. So he said you could also examine when you have an individual like this that maybe they have recovered to some degree. Some of the post nowadays talk about we have an, a, a concept of some Ibiyadeh. You have people who suffer from paranoia, they suffer from schizophrenia, they suffer from all kinds of things, but when they take their drugs, they're pretty good. So if a person can take their drugs and be pretty good, so then you don't say the person is automatically a shoti. You say maybe it depends on whether they took their medicine that day or whether they didn't take their medicine that day. I went to law school with a fellow who suffered from paranoid schizophrenia. Throughout law school, he took his medicine, so he was pretty functional for that period of time. So uh, the uh, so, so so the well, one, one second. So in this particular case, he says that the the crazy or the the, the the peculiar things that this person did, they did certain peculiar things, but those peculiar things also happened to have been more a couple of years earlier, and it could be that they had really gotten over that, in which case they would already be in the category of So therefore, it seems that. Really, when you're not dealing with the classic categories, if you are dealing with the classic categories that are described in the Gemara, so then it could be that it's objectively going to be a psul across the board. Generally speaking, we don't deal with a person who's Yotze, Yechidi, Belayla, Lon, Kisuso. Those are not your standard cases that we deal with at the Bezdin when we deal with when these questions arise. And therefore he says that you can make case-by-case determinations if the person knows what they are doing transactionally, so then their transactions could be valid, and therefore he feels that a get could be given in this particular case. Question, two, two questions, yes. When you say case-by-case, do you mean also for ritual-by-ritual? Ritual? So, for example, for the Pesach, to count them from minion. Or to Budenbirkas coining that the persons are calling, or to receive money from a Pidyan Aben. Do we. Well, Zamenachem Yagoberg says that it is ritual by ritual. And therefore, this is one of the reasons he was opposed. He was opposed to individuals of diminished mental capacity, okay, let's say who would not be in the category of Shote, of those who would be absolutely deranged. But those who would be, look, we used to call it mental retardation. Now we'll call it developmentally disabled, but he was opposed to developmentally disabled youngsters or individuals, shall we say, getting married to each other. Why was that? Because he said that there's a distinct possibility that they might have the requisite knowledge to understand what marriage is all about, but not have the requisite knowledge to understand what divorce is all about. And therefore, it could be that halakhically they'll be considered to be married, and then if the marriage doesn't work out, they're going to be stuck for life because they won't be able to effectuate, or the man in particular won't be able to effectuate a valid divorce. Uh, so there he said, for that reason, he was actually opposed to such marriages. Not everybody shares that sentiment. 
But uh, that was uh, that was the concern based specifically on the issue that you raised. Yes, Rabbi Zeldin. So the Slavs Yoser, being in healthcare, it's, it's, it, you come across people like this all the time. Someone who is schizophrenic, they, they could do a transaction, they could do things like that, but they can't function in society. Is that person, first, so my first question is, is that person, not only are they puzzled ages, but are they also putter for mitzvahs? That is, was one question I wanted to ask. And then the second question is, is the case of someone with dementia. Someone with dementia. Where do, when we, at what point now do we say this person has dementia, they don't understand mitzvahs, are they putter for mitzvahs, we don't put film on them anymore, we don't have to try because they're not going to understand what it is, and they're putter, so I, I, I just want to bring up those two questions. These are very, very difficult questions to answer because, as the Ramam said, it really requires a fine-tooth comb to make that determination. If they fall within the first category of the, of the Ramam, some is nitrofadaito, the person is just absolutely maniacal of an imsedaitum shabesh's tummy. They have no grasp of reality whatsoever. So then says the Ramam, that person is Eno Ben Mitzvos. That person is not considered to be a Ben Mitzvos at all. But Moshe Feinstein writes in a tshuva, that source Yud Aleph, Ebn Ezra, Aleph, Simen, Kopchok. But Moshe Feinstein writes in a tshuva that somebody who falls into that category of shote. Um, that individual would be uh, putter from all the mitzvahs because since they be putter from mitzvahs that relate to their craziness, so they're putter to, from all of the mitzvahs. Now it happens that not everybody was in agreement with that. Um, Tosvos, for example, was of the opinion that the person is only putter from the mitzvahs that they are not capable of performing, but they would be obligated in other mitzvahs. But that was Ramosha's feeling, and Ramosha felt that that's why, according to the Rambam, um, if somebody is a shota, so they're putter, they're, they're not able to be an aide, they can't be a witness because of the fact that to be a witness, you need to be chayav in all the mitzvahs, and they're going to be putter um, from the mitzvahs. But the Ramosha had a bigger chiddish. He held that somebody who's a shota b'davrecha, you could even be an actual shota, not even a pesi. Some of you are a maniac. You're crazy. You're off the wall. You're out of. You're off your rocker uh, when it comes to a particular issue. But he says, as long as you have sanity when it comes to all of the other issues, so whatever you transact when it comes to other matters, whatever commercial transactions you're involved with. It's going to be 100% kosher when it comes to other matters. Even though you're an actor, not just a pesah, you're a shote. You're, you're bonkers, okay? You're berserk. You're, you're off the wall. The per- his example was a person gave a get and he thought he was Mashiach. He thought he was Mashiach. He wasn't even Lubavitcher. He thought he was Mashiach. Um, and he goes and he gives and he, and, and he gives a get. Um, and uh, the Rav Moshe said he thinks that the get is valid even though this person did weird things that normally we would say would be a sim and but he said it made sense based on the fact he thought it was Mashiach, he was Mashiach, so he thought he's like Adam Arishon before the Chait. Adam Arishon before the Chait um, did, did not have to wear clothing. So therefore, this individual was under the impression that since he was of that pristine stature of Adam Arishon before the Chait, he didn't need to wear clothing either. So he walked around naked, but said Rav Moshe, this made a lot of sense based on the fact that he thought that he was Mashiach. But when it came to understanding marriage and divorce and giving a get, he was 100% cognizant of what he was doing. So therefore, Rabosha said that his get was, was valid under those circumstances. He had other considerations. He hadn't walked around naked for a long time at the time in which he gave the get, but that was basically Rabosha's argument. Now, the others, like Rav Cook, 
the Nota Yehuda, who also points it out, another important detail, which is that if a person just says things that are nutty, like a person has delusions of grandeur, they think that he thinks that he's the king of England, or whatever, um, but he doesn't do anything, doesn't get himself naked, he doesn't do anything to manifest that particular state of mind, so that also does not qualify as a shota. Uh, for purposes of negating the person's transactions and the like, because all the cases in the Gemara are cases where the person manifested their craziness through action and not just uh, through their thought process and uh, through their babbling. So the Bezdin Vasisa Yashavato talks about a person who sort of babbles a little bit. They say things that, that don't make a lot of sense, but he says if they're you know speaking in a way in which it's they're just uh, out of touch with reality entirely. So maybe you can't respect their transactions, but if the way that they're speaking is simply that they don't have a very high level grasp and that they're speaking sort of like as a simpleton in terms of the way in which they understand politics and the world and stuff of that variety, so that doesn't necessarily disqualify them from making bequests or doing transactions if they understand the import of those transactions. So that's all with respect to definition of shote and what it means to be feeble-minded. We see the fact that somebody's feeble-minded does not mean that their transactions are invalid. It just means that we have to be a little bit more circumspect to make sure that they understand on a basic level what they're doing. Now, in terms of the second part of the equation, before we get into actual examples and applications, the second part of the equation is the part about undue pressure. So when it comes to undue pressure, so we have the sugya in Baba Basra, right? The sugya in Baba Basra, page 6, source your gimel, amrafuna taluvizavin zvine zvine. Says Rapuna, if you force somebody into selling an item, it's considered to be a valid sale. Why is it considered to be a valid sale? You go until the very, very end of the Sugya El Sabarahu. It's a Sabara, it's a logical argument. Agavunse Gamu Makne. You're going to throw money at somebody and they're going to accept the money and sell an item they didn't want to otherwise sell. So they're going to say, look, you're giving me money. So at the end of the day, it's considered to be a willing sale. Um, the Rosh Bam there explains you have two things going on. Number one, they, the person wants to stop being harassed. He is Tisurim. And number two, there's Matan Most. They're getting money. So since they're getting money out of the deal, he says, stop bothering me. I'll sell the item. But in the end, they essentially acquiesce to selling the item. There's an important exception to this idea. If you take a look at the way it's codified in the Shulchan Aruch, um, it's really based on the last three words of the Rashbam in Source Yudalid, um, where and, and Baba Basra, Memchesam, and Af, the Rashbam says, the Lomaxinidi. He's not losing anything. You give a request, though, you are giving away something. You're not necessarily getting something for it. So says the Shulchan Aruch in Simon Reish Heisip base, when do we say that it is considered to be a valid sale, assuming the person didn't otherwise give a moda'ah, uh, make an announcement in front of witnesses uh, that it's, he doesn't really intend to sell it? That's only b'mecher, if it's a sale. But if it's a matana, like a gift, a bequest, then um, even if we don't necessarily have a moda'ah in place, it's not going to be a valid sale. If you take a look, at the uh, at at the Nesivas Amishbat, he says that the onus below modah mebatel hamat behuadin. The onus below modah mebatel hamatano. If a person is pressured unduly to give away a gift, so then the gift becomes bottle. 
the gift is no good. So here you have these two different considerations. You have, I have to examine when a person is making a bequest, let's say that they're feeble-minded, um, that they're frail, they're old, I have to take into account, do they know what they're doing? And I also have to take into account, was there undue pressure? So but Menashe Klein, in the tshuva that he wrote on this subject, he said, these are the things we need to look at. Look at page 7, source Yudches. He says that um, when you have uh, this question, uh, so uh, these are the two different considerations. Look at the second paragraph. I don't understand why is this a new question. If it's the first question, the first thing you have to look at is, is it Bechlat he says that whatever are the rules when it comes to undue pressure, when it comes to a sale, so that would be the or a gift. It would be the same thing over here. Uh, and uh, he says that uh, that's a and so too, if there is a certain amount of pressure that's exerted, so that would be the question you have to ask. Is it undue pressure? But then he says, I have a raya from the Gemara and Baba Basra that if I have one child or one heir that puts a lot of pressure on a person who's about to die, or give it to me and don't give it to the other child, or give me the inheritance and don't give it to the other brother, um, that uh, that was not necessarily uh, be undue pressure because the person really is an heir and they have the right to campaign for themselves. I found this a little bit interesting. Uh, but, but the Gemara and Baba Basa, Dafkuf Nun Aleph, Amin Aleph, taught us as two cases. One case is about four lines down. The mother of Rami Bachama, in the morning she wrote her Nechassim to one son, Rami Bachama. Um, in the, uh, I'm sorry, in the, in the evening she wrote to Rami Bachama, and then the following morning, Bitsafa Kasuna Rabbi Ukva Bachama, she wrote to a different son. So the first son went in front of Roshashis and uh, said, uh, it's not fair, it should go to me. And he said, okay. And then the next son went to Rabbi Ukva, went to Rabbi Nachman, and he said, no, the second son gets it. So Shesha says, how can a person uh, back out of the first the gift? She was a Shkimera. She was on a deathbed and the gift of a Shkimera is considered to be binding. So Rav Nachman pointed out, we have a gift, we have a rule that the same way that a Shkimera, if they recover from their illness, their gifts become void. So since their gifts can become void anyway, they can give to one person, change their mind, and then give to the second person. So therefore, the gift to the second son is really the valid gift and he's the one who gets uh, the who gets the inheritance. So that's one case. It says from Asha Klein, I already know that principle. You could change it. But then I have another case. So the another case, second case must be must be teaching me a new principle. This is the case two lines before the, the bottom of page six. She wrote in the morning, she wrote to her one brother, she wrote her assets, and then um, in the, towards the end of the day uh, came along and he started crying to her. He said, you gave to my brother now people are going to say, my brother's a big time, the big time of Chachan, and I'm not because you gave all the money to him. So she said, oh, you're right, I'll give it to you. So she gave him the money instead. So also the comment of Nachman, and Rav Nachman said, yeah, same rule. She, a person has the right to change their mind. Yes, I'm Klein, why do I have this second case? So he said, it must be that we see from this second case um, uh, that uh, despite the fact uh, that uh, the second brother was sort of trying to entreat 
uh, the sister take advantage of her good nature um, uh, that she should switch the gift from the first brother to the second brother, that's not considered to be undue influence because she was of sound mind. The Kaigan Naliki Surah says that, that we see that there is no problem in this particular case. Unbelievable. So he says, but maybe you can distinguish. Maybe you can distinguish because he had the right to petition her because what she did in the first place wasn't so nice. Because she didn't split her assets 50-50, she gave all of her assets to the first brother. So since she was doing something that wasn't so nice, so therefore, shopping lo mikri abla. So maybe that's why it's not wasn't considered to be a travesty what the second brother did. Um, but maybe if the person is in the first instance not trying to correct a, mis- a miscarriage of justice, but to create a miscarriage of justice by putting pressure upon somebody before they die, so maybe then it would not be valid. So he said, I, I'm not so convinced about that distinction because the Gemara seems to indicate that it's okay, but he does, in fact, um, raise that possibility, and I think that's a very good litmus test. Because I've seen that sort of thing happen. I've seen it happen where there was improper pressure that was placed upon somebody who was old and frail to agree that they're going to go into some sort of a nursing home, whatever it was, when they really wanted to stay home to be taken care of. And then those who were close to the individual found out about how the pressure had been placed upon them and they took the requisite steps to have a video uh, that would be core, the person of sound mind, and show that they really knew what they were doing and said, I don't want to go to the nursing home, I want to stay right here and be taken care of. And it was sort of a correction of an abla. So to do a correction of an abla is a different story than performing the abla in the, um, in, in the first place. But it was a very interesting observation that he makes. He says he doesn't think that just a mere claim of undue influence is something that would be recognized by the halacha. If you take a look at the next paragraph in the in the article by Ramanashin Klein, he says that if it's a, if in a general case you just want to say that because somebody was on their deathbed, it's not a valid mishpat. So it's not like the Bateya Mishpat that just said, oh, undue influence. We don't automatically come up with this category of undue influence. If you have witnesses that say the person was of sound mind, we have a principle. Apishnai made them yakum dover. It's good enough if you haven't proven that the person is of, is, is not of sound mind. Second to last paragraph, Mashashal Kate Sanitan, the Haginapi Allah, the Katkila al Kashish with Neyatsmo. How are you going to protect the old person from undue influence? Nehashpa, guilty who gets. That's a Hebrew translation for undue influence, right? Uh, so he says, that that's a very difficult. If we haven't determined that the person is a shota, so why are we suddenly deciding, uh, deciding ourselves that we're going to appoint an apotropist and not let the person decide for themselves? Next line. Only if we're not really sure. Only then are you supposed to engage in an inquiry, but otherwise the starting point is that the person knows what they're doing. This actually comes from a Chuvas Haritva. The Ritva actually says this. The Ritva in source, Chub Gimel on page 10, uh, talks about Shuvah Mashatoin, Ruvain Mabatil Shtarat Sabah. Ruvain wanted to be Mabatil, some will, last will and testament of somebody. Because it didn't say the person was of sound mind. So he says, even though we do have such Lashonos, 
the Rama writes this as well in Shulchan Arach. We don't require a bedika of somebody, like it says in the parak Aksu, somebody who stopped being able to speak, and then we have to interview him, does he know what's going on, before we can allow him, when he has laryngitis, right, to give a getter to his wife, and because then the daita shigishtu, we're worried that the person is not of sound mind, about stam we do assume it is in fact of a sound mind. It's only when there is a going to be sort of a serious question. The Ritva says even if the way that the person gave away their assets was they answered questions. So we say, oh, you want to give your assets to so-and-so? He said, yeah, you betcha. That's also considered good enough, even though they were just answering a question. And he brings a riot from Parakesh Oakland where they asked somebody who was on his deathbed, Nixay Laman, Do you want to give, who do you want to give your asses to? Maybe to so-and-so? He says, yeah, El Laman, if not to him, to whom? Now, I'll add, the El Laman is better than Cain. Cain, this could be Tumba Nakale. The person just says, yes, they, they, you don't know what they're saying yes to. They say a clever retort. Like, yeah, if not to him, then to whom? So I think that's a little bit more of an indication of intellectual and mental savvy. So I, I think you have to look clearly at the Lushan over there. There are two shuvas of the Tashbates. Tashbates also from the Rishonim, um, who says that if there is a psul based on Tirupadas, what is a suffix in the tzava, that it's not entirely clear uh, based on the circumstances that the person knew what was going on. So then you have to do a clear uh, analysis. And otherwise, we say that the if it's not borrower, then we assume that the original heirs are the ones who are going to, who are going to inherit. Uh, there's the, 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 the basic test uh, is established by the Marival, Marival, very early Akron, Marival, source called Bob, on page 11, Marival says, like the, uh, Ritva, like the Ritva, that we basically work with the starting point that if there is no Reyesa, the mere fact that a person is on their deathbed does not indicate that they're not of a sound mind, but he said that you have to look at all the circumstances. He quotes the Tosefta, Tosefta, he claimed in Gitin Perakei Halacha Aleph, which it seems to indicate you only have to be bodeg somebody if they're meshutak, if they're not able to speak. But the truth is, if you look at the Lashon, uh, and the Prechadus points this out, that says, Hayachole o meshutak, bokenoso. Sounds like even if the person is sick, even if they are able to speak, that they require a bedika. So it's not so clear that the Tosefta supports what he's saying. But he says, look at the circumstances of the case. In his case, where there were people who wanted to be mevatel the tzavah, he said that tzavah was very reasonable. The person appointed the, or his wife as the asset, as the guardian of the assets, and he gave benasan mehikdish matanos tzavuyus mekubanos leviyashro. He gave away to tzavah an appropriate amount according to his wealth, and he says that since the amount that he gave were hayu neosim kefi anosim kefi nechasov. That it was appropriate based on the circumstances. I love this phrase. You may osim kefi anosim. It was appropriate based. On, we, we thought we came up with that in the 20th century. No, the Mari Balkan. It was appropriate based on the circumstances, and there is no other reyesah. So then he says that the, the gift can be perfectly valid. Now, sometimes you could have circumstances, however, that are very suspicious. So you have the case of of Tzviben Yaakov. Tzviben Yaakov is a guy in Tel Aviv. And he wrote an article about a case that came in front of him. This is in source Chok Aleph, page 9, where there was a person in a nursing home who was in bad condition. 
and somebody else was visiting a relative who happened to be in the same nursing home. And while he was visiting his relative, there were two like rabbi, rabbinical looking figures who ran out of one room and said, oh, can you do us a favor? We need you to sign something. And he said, with a friend of his, who's also visiting this, uh, this sick friend. And he and his friend said, oh, yeah, sure, we'd be happy to help you. Can you just sign this? We, we have this person here, he's making like a last request and we need you to sign this document. And he said, are you sure like, that this is the right thing? We don't really know the circumstance. It was like a very religious looking rabbi there. He says, yes, it's a mitzvah. It's a mitzvah. So they think, okay. So they sign and they go on. And it turns afterwards that the fellow gave away his entire fortune to some stalker that uh, these uh, people were pushing for this person to sign. And the relatives were beside themselves. That uh, this, uh, they took away the entire inheritance of this individual to go to this stuck. And the doctor who treated this individual said this individual was not of sound mind. This person really was not of sound mind. So the question was, I, but there were witnesses. And the witnesses signed, part of what they signed, if they read the text, which they're deemed to have read, says, we have determined this person is of sound mind. So the witnesses said, look, about a day or two later, we realized that what we signed maybe wasn't 100% correct and it was suspicious circumstances. Can they retract their statement? Because they were valid witnesses, they're chasimos. Their signatures could be substantiated by signatures on other documents, so we didn't need them to substantiate their signatures to say, yes, you don't trust them when the signatures are Yotze, so he quotes from a shach, a shach in Simon Mem Gimel and Choshen Mishpah, who says, based on uh, the Ramban, others, um, that whenever the witnesses sign on something which is Asuyim Litos, the Yorok HaShulchan says this as well. It's the sort of thing where people commonly make mistakes, so then the witnesses are allowed to retract. And he says, this is a situation, very interesting, you look about six lines from the bottom, Kashir Medu, Kashir is the last one in line, Kashir Meduba Ba'adam Cholavitashush, when you're dealing with a person who is sick and very weak and frail, Humina Dvarim She'edam Asuyim Litos. This is the sort of thing where witnesses could make a mistake. These types of determinations and mental capacity really are things that should be determined by doctors and not by regular people who happen to be visiting in the nursing home. So therefore he says, that in this case, I think you have a reyesa. The reyesa is the person is already in a nursing home. There were doctors who attended to this person who said the person really didn't understand what they were doing for a long time. They had watched them for many months. And even these witnesses were sort of like grabbed the last moment. And these were not... When these were not gifts that were given away that were what we would we call appropriate under the circumstances. It's not as if the person just gave like a token amount of $18 that they would normally give to a stucco that would stop by their home and knock on their door. So if you take a look at Business Halakha Institute, Source 22, they have the following question. And I think here too, maybe they were too influenced by some of the polemic. Uh, that we saw in uh, some of the writings. But if you look carefully, I don't think that Menashe Klein was really being so polemical over here. He was being reasonable. But here, I don't think that this uh, fits within his case. An elderly gentleman spends the final years of his life in a nursing home. In his will, which was drafted shortly before his death, he left a significant bequest to a member of the staff that cared for him during his final days. His family was naturally quite upset and suspected that the staff member had abused their position of power and influence over the increasingly feeble patient. What are the halakhic factors involved in asserting claims of undue influence? So he goes into Tayyub Bezavin. Why is Tayyub Bezavin considered to be good? The rationale is that since the seller received full consideration for the sales agreement, the sale is valid. So what did I say? There was no sale over here. You're just giving away your other assets. So they said, oh, I don't know about that. Take a look at the next page on page 10. So they said, in the case at hand, 
If the testator believed that by providing the staff member with a bequest, he would obtain better quality service, ah, it's a mecher. He's essentially buying himself service, and his bequest would be valid. To which I would answer, look at the Marival. Marival says it has to be reasonable under the circumstances, right? What do we say that uh, the test uh, that the test was according to according to the Marival? We had a very good lashon. You're giving away the majority of your estate to a caregiver. That's not neosim kefianosim. You want to give a, a little gift, a trinket, a, a, a bracelet, a necklace. Uh, to the caregiver, that's one thing. You could say that's a better quality service. But to give away half of the estate? No, I don't think so. I think that that's a beyond. That already creates a serious reis that requires a further a further examination. Mm-hmm. Never mind the fact that the pre-Kaddish disagreed with the Maori Baal altogether, and the pre-Kaddish is of the opinion that you have to examine every single case where you have an individual who is already sick and on their deathbed. So even though the Ramad does not paskin like the pre-Kaddish, he paskins more <coughs> like the uh, Shita of the Maribah, because the Pichadosh came after, after the Ramah. Uh, but nonetheless, I think that what you have to look at is sort of at the totality of all of the circumstances. Yes? Couldn't we have something with an organization as a nursing home where the contract is when you go to work there that you're not allowed to leave any, anything that's left to them beyond the de minimis is, is void? That would be very nice, and maybe you should petition for such a law. But apparently uh, there wasn't such a law in place whenever this incident occurred. Now, this incident occurred in Eretz Yisrael. There's another case that, that the best in... Uh, the caregiver say keenly, I hold it to the I don't hold it to my that you could say Kimli and others that the, yeah, that the relatives, I'm not, I'm not that the heirs could say, the heirs yeah, could yeah. say Kimli. It's an interesting question. It's a very interesting question. When, when this is codified by the Pisgah Koshin, if you look at uh, source, uh, source 29, so he says uh, that you have to make sure the Mitsuba is of sound mind when he makes uh, the, when he makes the bequest. And he quotes uh, from both uh, the Marival and uh, from uh, the Prikadosh, and he says like this, he says uh, that, uh, look at the first line, Pashu Shimeno Shafa Bidaito or Eva Klaus Shota. He says, Shota, if he doesn't have sound mine, it would be appropriate, it would be appropriate to check. Uh, and he says uh, that the pre brings the Maribal, who says that as long as the person still has the capacity to speak, so then we assume that what he's doing is of sound mind. He notes that the pre uh, disagrees with him and uh, shows uh, that uh, you need to check him at least, that you need to check him at least once. And then he quotes to the Maharsham who says uh, that whenever you have a reyasa, whenever you have a reyasa, uh, so that's when we really would put into effect the pre for sure. And that's what he says in the bottom line. He says, It's only when you have a suffix and he quotes as well approvingly from the Ramah, which is in Koshim Mishpat Simon Reish Nun Sidbab. But what you said about uh, the Kimli idea of the Pichadash, I, I, I hear that. I, I, I definitely hear that. But I think that sometimes it's just like... St- what? Oh, the Yorish is not a Muxak yet. I don't know, it's a question. It's a question. He's sort of a Muxak. However, I do think that the, you, 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 it's a double-edged sword. Because you don't, like the, like Ramanasha Klein said, you don't want to automatically take away the ability of somebody to give away their assets in the fashion that they really desire. But you have to look at things that are objectively suspicious. So the Bezid in Israel had this case, I'm not going to go into all the details because we're running out of, we're running out of time, 
But the best did in Eretz Yisrael, this is the case of source Chof, on the bottom of page 7, the best in Batei Din of Abeniyim, the Yisrael, a case that came in front of Amazuz, Radum, and Ben Shimon, involving somebody who uh, was not in a nursing home. Um, but they but they made a will, and they basically gave garnished to uh, their two daughters. They only had two daughters, and they had a sister. They gave $10,000 to their sister. To the two daughters, they gave 100 stolen each. A hundred, uh, basically, they gave each of the daughters a pizza pie. So, but all of the other assets were given to a Karen, to a, uh, to a fund of the, a fund of the Shem Saba Kadisha Mishapolo, to perpetuate the legacy of the Saba Kadisha Mishapolo, who was one of the Tamidim of the Baal Shemto. And the daughters were screaming, Shrein Chayavakayim, uh, that this fellow, he would live by himself. He was basically a hermit. He didn't interact normally with people. He was a Meshuga. The fellow was known as a Meshuga. And they interviewed the people who were handling the fund. For some reason, they gave them a lot of uh, credence. I'm not sure why they weren't disqualified, given that they were handling the fund. And they said, no, 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 we checked out the person and we saw he was completely of sound mind. And uh, this uh, Shuba quotes the Maharit and uh, that uh, even if a person's of lower capacity, nonetheless, they know what they're doing. And anyway, he was a great, great grandson of the Shabbos Amamishapula. And over the course of his life, he had given money for Malava Malkas and parlor meetings and so forth to raise funds for the legacy of the Saba Mishapula, so therefore it was perfectly reasonable. It was a two-to-one vote. One Dayan Yushino disagreed with this result. The two other Dayanim said, and just because somebody's a Meshuggah, the Rabbah moved that Ilulea Mishtagayim, Lohayahola Mishkayim, that the world wouldn't exist if not for the Meshuggah. I wish that he had provided a source. I'm still looking for it. But that's, so, so, so I'm not sure about this one. Maybe if the person had given a, a, a $10,000 donation for the legacy and the fund of the Saba Mishapula, we could say that's consistent with uh, their general approach in life and so forth. And therefore, this is, uh, is something which, which is reasonable. But otherwise, I would think that especially if it was towards the end of their life, it would be something suspicious. But here, maybe part of what the Besden was looking at was that, that this was the way the person was their entire life. And if we held that their transactions were generally valid, so they weren't such a people person, they weren't so close to their relatives, and also this didn't take place when they were inside of a nursing home. So just to sort of summarize what I would, I guess, um, what, what, what I would consider to be the takeaways of what you would look at is, number one, somebody who does acts of craziness on a regular basis probably can't be relied upon when it comes to any transactions whatsoever if they really act crazy. But there's much more latitude looking at every single individual transaction when it comes to a pessy, somebody who's just feeble-minded, but they're not crazy. So you just look at if they understood what they were doing in the context of a particular transaction. Number three, if there is no reyes per se, um, then when somebody is sick and old, that doesn't automatically invalidate a gift, even a large gift, even an unusual gift or bequest, a transaction that is performed, However, number four, if there is any reyesa, such as the person is, uh, has mental illness, or the person is in a nursing home, and it makes sense to ask the doctors about their mental capacity, then that requires examination. Number five, so too an unusual gift, or an unusual change uh, in a person's will at the last minute, also probably constitutes a reyesa that you have to examine if they were of a sound mind. Number six, the idea that you can rely upon Talyovizavin is very questionable in the context of a bequest, particularly when what the person is getting 
like from a caregiver, does not justify the amount of the gift that is being given. Um, next, I think we're up to maybe number seven, that if at the end of the day, it really ends up being sort of a suffix, we can't figure one way or the other, then we are generally, the principle is to be mom in the chasim, which would be keeping it within the family and within within the heirs or within the context of whatever had been the previous uh, of the pre- the previous bequest um, and um, number eight um, to the extent that it is appropriate to effectuate a change to a person's disposition and to get involved proactively that probably should be as like Ramanasha Klein suggested based on the Gemara which I like that suggestion should be only in a case when you're working to correct an agla that had been performed and to set things and to set things straight. Um, and then finally, based on what we said at the beginning of this year, there are strict rules and regulations when caring for an incapacitated uh, relative or individual um, to make sure that all of the money is only used for the benefit of that individual and consistent with the way that person has used and distributed their assets in the past. That should only be, uh, as Rabbi Zaman Nechemi says, lahachil below lahaniach, that it's uh, for the purpose of taking care of the person right now um, and not uh, taking care of other individuals um, whose uh, needs will be appropriately addressed at a later uh, point in time. Lahachil mea ve'esrin. Stop here. Thank you.